Hello, I'm David Mosscroft. Welcome to Open to Debate. In the United States, a leaked draft opinion on the constitutional right to abortion has put those who support choice on high alert. The constitutional protection of that right is at risk, putting the well-being and lives of millions in the path of peril as the country tilts ever further towards Christian theocracy. As news of the U.S. leak circulated, many in Canada took notice and raised questions about the right to choose in this country, wondering whether it was secure, and if so, for how long. As is often the case, a chorus of, it can't happen here, emerged. But this country has its own issues when it comes to abortion rights and access. To find out what those are, we ask, what is the state of abortion rights and access in Canada? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Frédéric Chabot, Director of Health Promotion with Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. So a quick note as we start for those listening, this is the aftermath of the storm that ripped through Ontario. So you may hear some noises in the background, uh, chainsaws for instance, I want everyone to know that this is just the, the sound of neighborhoods coming together to clean up. It's nothing. Uh, too apocalyptic, at least not yet. We've got a few more years before that. So if you hear some sounds in the background, bear with us. That is the sound of life returning to something approximating normal for the moment. But uh, let's talk about something that isn't normal. Let's start with some national and cross-border context for abortion rights in North America. Uh, we're having this discussion while waiting for the official U.S. Supreme Court decision on abortion rights. The leaked draft decision is a massive threat to the rights and safety of people who may become pregnant. We know that already. In Canada, this has intensified the debate over abortion rights and abortion access. So I want to get a sense first of how the, the Canadian state of affairs compares to that in the United States, and then we'll get into the details. Of course. So the policy and legal landscape in Canada is quite different from what's going on in the United States. And, and so we're not necessarily dealing with the same level of threat when it comes to uh, a right to abortion care in Canada. So as many people will know, abortion was decriminalized in 1988 um, after the Supreme Court ruling um, that is called like the Morgan Teller ruling. And uh, that was that was the uh, the result of the of a case that was put forward by Dr. Henry Morgan Teller, who was seeking the right to provide abortion to, to people in Canada. And so this is an important point to make because this actually brings us to what the conversation is about in Canada, which is about access to abortion. And so what was won then was the decriminalization of abortion. And so it was taken out of the criminal code and uh, moved to being regulated as a medical procedure, which is important. Uh, and and basically frames how uh, how we can kind of consider the impacts of what's going on in the United States or what could happen in Canada uh, from anti-choice activities or any kind of threat to to that right. Um, but it's also noteworthy that it, what we won was not access to abortion care. It was the right to for for healthcare providers to provide that care. So. There's only one province that went a little bit differently uh, in Canada. So Quebec feminists at the time uh, were, of course, in solidarity with the groups that were supporting Dr. Henry Morgan Teller um, in terms of his his uh, his efforts to to seek the decriminalization of abortion. 
Uh, but they also were clear that their goal was to enshrine access to abortion as opposed to just the right to perform abortion care. And so we've seen a different landscape, different landscapes kind of emerge across Canada, which is part of the conversation today. But um, in terms of what's going on here, different legal uh, and policy landscape, one where abortion is a medical procedure is regulated as such. And so that means it's under uh, the Canada Health Act, which basically dictates how medical procedures should be accessible for, to Canadians. There's pillars uh, to the Canada Health Act. I'm not going to remember all of them, but it's easily Googleable. Uh, but basically, in short, it uh, medical procedures need to be accessible. They need to be publicly insured and uh, portable. So, which means that depending on where you find yourself in Canada, shouldn't matter when it comes mm -hmm. to accessing uh, healthcare that you need, which protects abortion in many ways. In many ways, where Americans uh, don't benefit from the same protection. So, long and short answer to say, different landscape doesn't mean that there won't be an impact it's not going to look the same as what's going on in the United States. I want to spend some more time getting into the access issue and, and talk a little bit about um, asymmetrical access across the country, um, which is, as far as I can tell, a, a strict violation of, of the idea that we are meant to have similar services, province to province, territory to territory. But first, I want to get something out of the way because it came up. And it seems to be confusing some people, and there's a bit of a debate on it, and that is whether or not there should be a law codifying abortion or access for that matter, but let's start with abortion itself. So as you mentioned, you know, it, what happened was Morgan Toller comes, we say this is a medical procedure. You don't have a law around hip replacements. You don't have a law around getting a tooth extracted. You don't need a law around abortion. Uh, there are limits uh, that are set by say medical practitioners and their professional association, but that's a different thing than a law. I mean, should there be a law that, that protects um, abortion? Is, should there be a constitutional protection expressly stated or is the status quo good enough? Most people I, uh, I'm familiar with in terms of um, abortion advocates in the country do not support the creation of a new law that would enshrine abortion. <laughs> differently than it currently is. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we are trying to be careful about is um, the fact that we have a friendly government in terms of abortion access, they've declared themselves pro-choice, they've been, you know, working at the federal level uh, to advance access to abortion in Canada, they speak to the issue often. And so uh, I think are feeling under pressure currently to, to continue to reaffirm their their commitment when it comes to increasing access or at least protecting abortion rights in Canada. And so uh, discussion of a law kind of came up rapidly in the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks, but this is not something that is supported by uh, abortion activists or people that are working in the field or, um, or this is not something we're asking for because right. currently we do have a law that protects abortion. It's the Canada health act. Right. And uh, it in theory actually speaks to access and provides tools to ensure access to abortion across Canada and to single out abortion out of healthcare uh, would actually bring in risks that are not currently present. And so 
It could mean that it could be overturned. It could mean that some restrictions would have to, to be brought in when currently there's none. Uh, it's regulated as a medical procedure. So there's no kind of limit other than uh, like what colleges put in place and this, uh, the skills and capacity of healthcare providers in terms of, in terms of uh, their ability to provide the services. And so uh, there's a strong desire to keep it as such, to keep it as a med treated as a medical procedure because abortion is healthcare. Abortion is a normal part of healthcare. And this is important for us to keep it as such. And instead, insist on the government to use the tools that they do have at the disposal already to continue to ensure that abortion access is improved in Canada. So let's move on to access, because I mean, as you mentioned at the outset, the heart of the debate in Canada and discussion seems to be around access. And as I mentioned, you know, asymmetrical access. So for instance, very different uh, experience if you're living in Toronto from if you're living in, you know, uh, on the East Coast, for instance. And this is uh, you know, for instance, PEIs in the news, right, around uh, especially especially bad case for, for access. Um, what is preventing us from fulfilling the requirements of the Canada Health Act and the expectations of our federation, which is that you have more or less equal access to more or less similar services across the country? I mean, why is it that we're uh, served, you know, well in one place, but not so well in another? Mm -hmm. That's a, a great question. And there's many layers to, to that uh, when it comes to understanding what has happened. So as I was mentioning earlier, Quebec went quite differently about, about the question in already in the 80s and the 90s and is the only province that integrated abortion care in its primary care. And so mm. the feminist groups uh, worked with, with the the government at the time to uh, institute like a network of abortion provision where you would never be farther than 200 kilometers from a point of service. And there's still problems in Quebec, but it's as seamlessly as possible integrated into all the community health centers and hospitals in Quebec to ensure that services are quite available. So the conversation was already different. And then it goes to show uh, the differences that can like from province to province. So uh, in Canada, we have about 100 points of services uh, outside of, of family doctors or other uh, frontline practitioners that can prescribe the abortion pill. When we're talking about hospitals and clinics, there's about 100 points of services in Canada, and more than half of those are in Quebec. Hmm. And so uh, for the rest of the country, it's really variable. So you were describing the different situation of someone who would be downtown Toronto with someone who would be in the Maritimes. And, and that's the reality right now in Canada is that if you find yourself in the prairies, like in Alberta and Saskatchewan, Manitoba, you'll find one or two points of service in the major urban centers. And that's it. They have to serve the entire province. In BC, it's quite well served, but of course it's concentrated at the southern end of the province. And if you go more rurally, it's more complicated to access services. Same from Ontario. And then the Maritimes has its own uh, series of challenges uh, with some provinces having restrictions that are in violation to the Canada Health Act, um, quite explicitly so. And, and then other places where you know, they've established uh, networks of services that are working quite well, like in Nova Scotia. So it really depends. Like if you find yourself in Nova Scotia, in New Brunswick, or in Alberta, you'll you'll get a different uh, you'll get a different access to uh, to a medical procedure that is 
quite common. So actually one of the most common medical procedures in the country where one in three people who can get pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetime. So it's a very common, very normal part of healthcare and it's not treated as such. So that's mm -hmm. where we reconnect to your questioning, like why is that the case? So there's a few answers. One of them is that we can't make sense of that if we discard anti-choice sentiments. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's no, there's no explanation that add up if you don't uh, think, if you don't add that as a factor, even when it's not explicitly stated. So either anti-choice sentiment or the fact that abortion is considered to be a bit of a political hot potato. So governments are afraid of tackling it. They're uh, afraid of the backlash if they uh, bring in policies that will increase access to abortion, or they simply do not support increased access to abortion, which is the case in many of the provinces. So there's, you know, anti-choice sentiments, which doesn't match um, public support for abortion access. So uh, in Canada, the public is quite supportive of abortion access. It's a very high percentage of the public that not only is in favor of abortion care, but actually supports increasing access. Uh, and that is actually cross-party. So even last uh, summer when we were entering the 2021 federal election, CBC ran a poll to kind of take the temperature of the support for abortion access because it's usually an election issue. Um, and, and across all parties, there is a strong support for increasing access to abortion mm. care. So not only pro-choice sentiments, but actually even speaking of uh, very practical in practical terms, uh, there should be policies to better the situation. Um, but despite that, governments are very timid uh, in terms of bringing policies that that support increased access. It's also the fact that it's a medical procedure regulated as such. And so there's a lot of barriers that can come from uh, professional colleges. And so this is this is also kind of managing the different levels where uh, policies must be put in place to support increased access to abortion. So it's not simply the federal government that could magically do something uh, or provincial government even. And then it also connects with the, the uh, I think, generalized underinvestment into uh, healthcare systems. And so abortion care is one of the victims of uh, increased scarcity, increased uh, pressure on healthcare systems. So when we're looking at provinces like New Brunswick, where there's huge issues of uh, abortion access to abortion care, there's also huge issues for access to all services. And so uh, the infrastructures that are needed for example, uh, ultrasound machines, labs uh, that are necessary to actually facilitate increased abortion access and would be needed if ever we got the right policies to increase abortion. And there would still be, there would still be capacity issues um, if that was the case. So there's many things going on at once. Um, healthcare systems are under pressure we're lacking infrastructure, policies are not being put forth. There's a lot of contentious objection happening across the country. We don't have systems to monitor that or remedy that. And then uh, we don't have the political will um, to actually tackle all of those issues. 
Has the pandemic made the capacity issues worse? Uh, I mean, as we know the wait times are a serious problem. They were a serious problem before. They've become more of a problem since the pandemic's arrived. Doctor burnout, nurse burnout, support staff burnout. Everyone's tired and burned out. People are leaving the profession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, has that had a, an effect on, a, on abortion access as well? It has both been an extraordinary extraordinary opportunity and of course has had negative impacts just like for most healthcare. So some pretty amazing things have happened for abortion access in the pandemic. First of all, there's been a sudden increase in uh, healthcare providers' willingness to provide medical abortion care. And so suddenly there was uh, doctors and family doctors, nurse practitioners, midwives that trained to become abortion providers in their own community. And, uh, and there's also been a rapid pivoting to telemedicine, which basically mm -hmm. also was a, a huge progress for abortion access, especially in region where it's hard to come across an abortion provider. So in Ontario, for example, suddenly we had clinics that were able to offer telemedicine or self-managed abortion uh, throughout the territory. You just had to call this doctor in a couple, you know, there's a few cities where there were such clinics and you could call from anywhere. You could call from Thunder Bay, you could call from Sault Ste. Marie, you could call from hmm. anywhere in Ontario and you would be able to get a prescription from, um, from those clinics. And so in some ways uh, we, we were able to, to benefit from the creativity and uh, suddenly the urgency to, to find solution that came with, with the, the pandemic, like when the healthcare system had to adapt to uh, having to give care to communities in really restricted terms uh, because of, of new public health restrictions, because of the inability to travel. Suddenly there is this openness to new ways of doing. So that really benefited uh, abortion access in, in communities where it had never been accessible before. So that's amazing and wonderful. And most abortion, most abortions in Canada happen under 12 weeks of gestational time. And so that means that people are able to access medical abortion within those timeframes and there's more facility in doing so. The issue is that, as you mentioned, there's also other pieces of the puzzles where the pressure got increased. So, uh, you know, some places that do offer medical abortion will want an ultrasound to ensure that, you know, the medical abortion care will be provided in the safest way possible, uh, or they will want a lab test to ensure that they have the right gestational time. And those were resources that were under great pressure. Uh, and so just like for other healthcare um, this, this meant more delays. And for abortion, this is significant. Like you, this is not something that you can wait for five, six weeks before you get, um, like it has to happen within a pretty short period of time. Um, and so, so that, that brought a lot of issues. And then of course, there's also people who need abortions after 12 weeks who need to travel to the centers where, uh, where that kind of care is offered which often mean urban centers. And so during the pandemic, uh, travel was really hard, especially in the first year and a half where, you know, regions clamped down, like you couldn't 
you can travel across pro provincial lines. You can travel outside of your city, even like it, bus lines were canceled, flights were canceled, trains were canceled. Um, hospitals started to restrict access to their care to only their geographical uh, areas. And so centers that had served the entire country were now serving only <laughs> like a small city. Mm -hmm. And it was impossible to, to get an appointment there. Um, despite the fact that they were the only center that provided that care. Um, in Canada, some people have to travel to the United States to seek abortion care when it's beyond a certain gestational time and the care is not available in Canada. And so uh, that travel became very tricky. So basically every month we had to figure out how, how to go about supporting people traveling sometimes the border was closed sometimes the border was open sometimes you needed a letter from your doctor to get a medical exemption to go through the border we've sent people to the united states where they got stuck there uh, because flights were canceled repeatedly um we uh of course also support people who don't have passports who are right. undocumented have criminal records um or just don't have the money or ID to get a passport. So that suddenly created some really intensely difficult situations for, for people when other hospitals in Canada were unable to provide that care and we were unable to send people to the United States to like as an alternative. So it was both, it was both an avenue for progress. Um, and I think we won't go back mm -hmm. like in terms of more telemedicine, more self-managed abortion, more primary care providers that are now interested in providing abortion to their uh, to their patients and integrate that into their practice. And then on the other end, we saw the, the massive barriers that were put in place, especially for more marginalized people because travel was restricted uh, and people were unable to move within Canada or unable to comply with public health restrictions. I want to pick up on the uh, an element of a point you raised about marginalized folks and, and talk specifically about barriers to access uh, for those of, of differing socioeconomic statuses. Uh, do we find that there are access barriers that that um, are particularly intense for low socioeconomic status folks? I mean, is it a class issue? Uh, is, it, is it a racialized issue? I mean, what, what when we look at these issues in Canada, we have this tendency in this country to look at as things as aggregate problems and then, of course, not break it down along class, gender, race lines. This is something that on this program we try to do as often as we can. So we look at access as a problem. We look at barriers as a problem. How does that break down along different um, social, political, economic and identity markers? Absolutely. Abortion is an economic justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. It's it. Any. Of, it's in terms of looking at who is able to access abortion in Canada, you will find that people who have money in their bank account are fine. They will yeah. access the abortion that they need. They will be able to travel. They have a passport. They are able to take time off their work uh, or they have the ability to pay for childcare or elder care, regard, depending on uh their situation and they will go and access the abortion that they need. It's the same thing when we're talking about, oh, will American people travel to Canada to access abortion? 
Of course, if people decide to travel to Canada, they will be able to do so and access abortion care. Um, but that means that it's not a right anymore. It's a privilege. It's people who have money who are able to do that. And it's the same in Canada. So uh, all the centers for abortion care are concentrated about 150 kilometers of the border. Most abortion care will, will be concentrated there in urban centers. And the centers where you can get care past a certain time are in the most major of urban centers. So Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. And so you have to have the ability to travel. And with abortion, you know, the people that we support often, once they find us, because uh, we do run an abortion fund, um, once people find us, it's often that, you know, they were denied care in their town. Mm -hmm. And then it, and then they're not told, like, we can't help you. Now figure it out on your own. And so people have to not only find the information on their own, and that requires resources to also find the information. It mm -hmm. requires access to the internet. <laughs> it requires the ability to have time to make several phone calls. To uh, So there's there's so many layers to the economic privilege of how to navigate access to abortion. And so when they finally find us, and sometimes that means delayed care, uh, they often need to to travel and people are left on their own device to find where to go and how to pay for, for those mm -hmm. trips. The more you advance in the pregnancy, the longer the appointment is. And so this is a trip that can demand that people pay for flights or train or bus tickets or gas cards if they have a car. And then they have to pay for accommodations for a few days, food, childcare. You know, there's so many expenses that come with leaving your community for a week. Um, and so that is an immense barrier for people. And then if we want to break that down on racial lines, because of course that's also the case. Well, first of all, economic um, capacities or privilege are not distributed equally uh, when we're talking about racial lines. But then when you look also at the geographic as, uh, access to abortion care, for example, let's take the prairies where the only centers where you can access abortion are in Calgary, Edmonton, Regina. Um, when you look at the breakdown between Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations, most Indigenous people will live outside of urban centers and most non-Indigenous are in urban centers. So even like restricting access in urban centers, there is a racial element there in terms of who will need to travel. And so we can look at it from so many angles. At the end of the day, if you have 500 bucks in your bank account, you will make your way to your appointment. And if you don't, then you're hard on your luck. Like mm -hmm. this is, you know, there's some resources that can be accessed for support, but they're often hard to find. They're not advertised. You need to find them on your own. You may encounter uh, anti-choice people along the way, either in the hospital, in your clinic, in crisis pregnancy centers, in your, which is often advertised as the only resource in many communities, um, which, can, which can mean that you're more likely if you are uh, outside of urban centers and don't have the financial resources, you're more likely to encounter disinformation around abortion, which has an impact on health. Um, so, Yes, abortion access is an economic justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. We cannot look at it any differently because um, if not, we won't understand what the work, what is the work that we had ahead of, ahead of us to 
actually improve access to abortion in Canada. So if you're someone listening to this and you're disconnected from medical or organization, uh, organizational communities, but you want to say, you say to yourself, okay, I recognize this problem. We do have a problem in this country. It's not the same problem as, the, as in the United States. So it's not exactly the same problems. I'm sure, I'm sure these problems exist in the United States as well. Um, what do I do? I mean, there are people then who want to say, okay, well, we want to see change. We want to see access become more common. We want to see it become equitable. What, what's, what's the thing that that person does? Is it who they vote for? Is it, is it the issues that the agenda set? I mean, I, because it, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to feel disconnected from this if you say, well, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, because politicians, as you mentioned earlier, politicians uh, seem in general to either not discuss the issue or support it, but then the other shoe drops and that's, okay, well, what are you going to do to ensure access? And that, that feels like a, a step that they, that they don't want to take or an issue they don't want to discuss because it, it, only, it rarely comes up. But, you know, the access issue rarely comes up, I find, in the mainstream. Uh, I, I see politicians ask, ask about it so rarely that I think people day-to-day folks would be forgiven for, for assuming we don't have an access problem if it hasn't touched them, especially people who don't get pregnant, uh, right? I mean, you know, because it's, if they're not dialed into the issue, then it's just not on their radar. What do we do for these folks? How do we get, how do we get better access in this country? Mm-hmm. It's so true. There's, you know, we've talked to a lot of people throughout the year who are looking for abortion care, and a lot of them are surprised that it's not more accessible than it is. I think there's many things that can be done as, you know, short-term solutions. So support abortion funds. So Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, we run a national abortion fund. So we pay for people's financial needs uh, to access their appointments. So you can support abortion funds. uh, And that goes directly towards ensuring that people make it to their appointments. So we pay for gas cards, we pay for pet care, we pay for train tickets, we pay for hotels, food, anything that gets in the way the fund pays for it. And it's a very low threshold fund, like in terms of ease of access um, to that. So this is something that can be very immediate. You can support that. And then you're literally changing someone's life mm. like that on that day. Um, that said, it's also important to work on the policies because that's a band-aid solution. This is something that we'll never reach everyone. This will be reaching the people that find us. This will be, uh, this is a temporary way to solve the problem. So what people can do is continue to have this conversation in, in public spaces. So every time this conversation is had in Canada, like, you know, when we say, let's not reopen the debate, actually it serves us when we open the debate, mm. quote unquote, because every time support goes up for abortion. People are wanting to support. They're wanting to, uh, to discuss their support, to, sh- to show it. They, and so this motivate, motivates politicians very much. So it's important to understand the impact that we can have when we are uh, talking, let, let's say sending letters to the media, sending letters to our parliamentarians, our elected officials, our community leaders, or, uh, or simply, you know, voting for politicians that have pro-abortion access platforms. And so making it like a political issue, this is something that we want to see being done better. Like, what are you going to do about this? And, and then supporting that publicly um, makes a huge difference. 
And then after that, depending on where we sit, you know, if we're a student, if we're a healthcare provider, there's so many avenues to increase access to abortion. So medical students have done tremendous work in the last years uh, in terms of shaking up what's going on in medical schools uh, in, for example, Newfoundland a few years back when um, the new abortion pill had been, well, it's not new. It's been in use for over 30 years in over 60 countries, but in Canada, it's been approved in 2015. And the years that followed after that was an effort to see it covered by government, like a universal cost coverage for the medical abortion pill. And in some provinces, medical students were on the forefront of those battles, calling on their governments to say, this is an equity issue. This medication needs to be covered as healthcare providers. Like we, this is what we demand. And there's a, you know, there's a social weight to have those demands made by healthcare providers in our communities. There's, um, there's a lot of, you know, social standing afforded to healthcare providers. And so when they join health advocacy, they have a big weight. This is also important to bring the light on the fact that medical school curricula do not include abortion. Uh, mm. And so, you know, maybe an hour will be dedicated to it, if anything, and there's no easy pathways to trainings for healthcare providers to become abortion providers. A lot of them who want to become abortion providers have to find their own kind of trainings in abortion clinics. And because there's not that many of them, it becomes like a, a hard, a hard pathway to, to developing like new abortion providers and train them. Um, and so, so that's something that we need to look at and uh, you know, people who are in those fields can do uh, is, is bring attention to the fact that medical schools need to bring, make this a core competency mm. because as I was saying, abortion is very normal. One in three people in Canada who can get pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetimes. Every family doctor, every nurse practitioner, every OBGYN should be able to provide abortion or at least to support patients in getting it or do options counseling or, you know, there's, there's a need for this to be included in primary care. Um, if we are in schools, if we are educators, there's a need for better sex education. Uh, that includes talking about abortion, that includes, you know, fighting against disinformation. If we are in communities where there's anti-choice activities, uh, maybe we can take up the task of calling our city councils and ask for regulation on abortion disinformation or protests or, you know, there's all sorts of fronts where we can, we can find ourselves um, addressing like the multiple barriers that people face to abortion. So of course, voting. And then after that, looking at from our own positioning as a student, as a healthcare practitioner, as a resident of a city that gets anti-choice postcards in the mail, as you know, there's, there's so many little things that we can, we can do. I want to close out on on two questions in the last couple of minutes that we have. One, something I'm I'm just curious about, something that frustrates me, and I'm curious if it frustrates you or frustrates uh, people in your community. It's um, when politicians are asked about being anti-choice, pro-choice, 
and they say, well, I wouldn't bring in a law to outlaw abortion and leave it at that. I'm thinking of one in particular. This is Pierre Polyev's line, but I don't want to make it just about him. He gets enough attention already. Uh, you know, this is a common political line. Is that enough? I mean, do we do we need to know what politicians specifically believe, or is it enough to say that they won't bring in a law? Because I think it's fair for a lot of folks to say, you know what, I don't trust you, <laughs> uh, for good reason. So I, th that's a little bit off off of the line of questioning, but I'm just I'm curious about this because it comes up. I think I think that's such a great question because there's two things that come to mind for me when, when you ask that. First of all, when we look at the United States, so this is why we're having this conversation, we're looking at the devastation that's being brought down on the United States. And what was uh, really shocking to me is that, first of all, three years ago, it was unthinkable that Roe v. Wade was ever going to be overturned. Unthinkable. And now suddenly it's thinkable because of one person getting elected in 2016 that brought in new judges who lied in their hearings to get confirmed on the Supreme Court to both the Congress and the Senate. They, they were specifically asked if they were going to address or overturn Roe v. Wade, if they considered it to be settled law. And all of them said, yes, this is settled law. We will not overturn Roe v. Wade. And so to me, this, this says two things, and not to be alarmist, because as I said at the beginning, different legal and policy landscape in Canada, it, different culture. There's, there's a lot of things that are different, but what sometimes we, we need to not completely discard the unthinkable mm -hmm. because it can happen. There could be a set of, there could be a set of circumstances that come together that makes it suddenly doable or reachable for a subset of our population that supports restrictions to abortion. And then they suddenly have the perfect storm of circumstances to make it happen, despite the lack of public support. Because that's the thing in the United States, mm -hmm. there is no public support for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It has nothing to do with what the American population wants. It's a, it's a very small minority of people who have infiltrated political institutions with a goal in mind and they are now acting despite the lack of support. And so that's the first thing I'll say, let's not discard the unthinkable. We need to be vigilant. We need to make sure that we secure uh, our rights and, um, and that we are vigilant in terms of the activity of anti-choice and anti-democracy and anti-rights groups that are active in Canada because they are active. And um, yeah, like that's, that's actually quite an important connection to make uh, between anti-democratic actors, which we saw during the freedom convoy, you know, there mm -hmm. was a, you know, calls to overturn like a dem democratically elected government and the connections that these people have with anti-choice organizing and also the transnational nature of, of activism and financial ties between the U S and Canada when it comes to anti-choice uh, activities. And, um, and so there, there is uh, a risk that comes from, from those groups and those actors from white supremacist groups. We have a very active white supremacist movement in Canada. We are one of the most active online uh, in the world when it comes to white supremacist uh, boards and, and, and white supremacist and anti-choice uh, views go hand in hand. 
Mm-hmm. Not always like there, it's not like a, it's a Venn diagram, but there's still like some ties there. So let's not discard the unthinkable and the other pieces. Like, let's see, let's look at what politicians are actually doing and mm-hmm. what they're voting for. And so they might not bring a law to outlaw abortion in Canada or outwardly like completely restricted, but the fight in Canada is about access restrictions to access. So what's going on in provinces with restrictions to abortion care, what can happen at the federal level with private members bills uh, suddenly bringing in restrictions to like, you know, you can't get abortion past 15 weeks or 20 weeks and which Mm. is something that we don't have in Canada. So we have to be really vigilant in terms of actions. Like you can say whatever you want. We have to see what you're actually doing and what you're supporting and voting for in terms of what's important to look at. Uh, for transnational solidarity and action and what to be vigilant for. So I think there is a global backlash on sexual and reproductive rights, and it's tied to a rising tide of anti-democracy forces. And, and so that's true in the United States. That's true in Canada. That's true in Europe. That's true kind of everywhere. I, well, I want to close out on that point specifically. Uh, you, you've anticipated my, my final question, which is, what do we do with cross-border organizing, cross-border activism, cross-border solidarity right now? Because I know a lot of people in Canada, as concerned as we need to be about the state of affairs here, are, are deeply, deeply concerned about the urgent need to do something in the United States where uh, well-being and indeed lives are on the line. The, you know, the line that we keep seeing that is, is absolutely right. This this won't end abortions. This will end safe abortions. This yes, really absolutely. Nice. People, people will die because of that. Um, what, what do we do about that? What's the cross-border work look like? So I think we need to have a global view on what's going on and keep ourselves really abreast of what's going on in Poland and Hungary and Russia and the United States hmm. um, and make sure that in Canada we go the other way. So supporting Canada as a champion for human rights as a champion for sexual and reproductive rights, and then make sure that you know both our policies and, and uh, budgets align with those priorities, uh, because that will have a very positive impact on other places in the world where rights are at risk. And so this is something that we can do in terms of global advocacy. In terms of more direct solidarity with, um, with people in the United States that are fighting on those front lines of abortion care. Well, you know, I think supporting groups that are fighting the fight um, for abortion access. So American abortion funds, Canadian abortion funds, continuing to monitor like the legal fights in the United States um, and to support those fights from here as well. Uh, so from the ACLU, from Planned Parenthood Federation of America, from the Center for Reproductive Rights, they are keeping all of us informed in terms of what's going on and the implications of what's going of of uh, of the attacks on reproductive rights. Because the impacts are, of course, you know, bigger than just abortion rights. When we look at the the case that will reverse Roe v. Wade or, or overturn it, it will have an impact on privacy like rights to privacy, which protects access to contraception, uh, you know, interracial marriage, uh, and all sorts of other um, aspect of civil rights in the United States. And so um, I think it's to make sure that 
we share um, information and financial aid where we can, um, and then support our, you know, counterparts in the United States, keep ourselves informed, keep ourselves really uh, informed on the bigger picture of what these attacks mean uh, for human rights, generally speaking. And so we can keep ourselves um, really engaged in those global conversations. So, and then, you know, I don't think there's going to be much travel for abortion between Canada and the United States, because there will still be some haven states in the United States where people will travel first. But um, so I don't know that that's, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to jump in and say, you can stay at my house, like mm -hmm. come to Canada. Uh, I don't know that that's truly how it's going to play out. So I think, I think it's more on an informational and financial level that we can continue to, to stand in solidarity with Americans at this really hard moment. Like as we see the dismantling of the rule of law and their democratic institutions, um, you know, this is, this is a really big deal and abortion is at the center. So it's kind of understanding the political links here and uh, being part of the conversations, being citizens of the world today and standing for human rights and um, in all the ways that that, you know, that can, we can find uh, to do so. Well, that brings us to time, but I, I wanna start with the, my thanks to you for joining me here today, especially in the midst of all uh, the storm um, craziness and, and uh, adjusting to that and an ongoing pandemic and the fact that it's supposed to be a long weekend. Uh, my deepest, deepest, deepest thanks for, join, uh, for, you to, for you joining me here today. I appreciate it very much. It's my pleasure. It's uh, those are important conversations, and I really appreciate the fa the fact that it digs deeper. So it's uh, it's nice to be here. Well, thank you very much. We certainly try, and you know what? Uh, I keep hearing people that were able to succeed, and that's because people uh, keep listening and people keep supporting us, and of course because people like Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, the team uh, who make this show not just possible but far better than it would be without them. They're the ones doing the, the core work that makes uh, sure that this happens and it gets out to folks. And I thank them. And so, as always, uh, thanks to each and every one of you. And we will see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>